was on Dorothy L. Sayers, um, and I'm going to give you a little, little introduction to who she is, but looking at her apologetic method, and um, interestingly, some of the themes that we've heard tonight, for example, the workplace as an area of Christian theology, John Lennox told me he thinks the best essays he's read on um, work and faith, the theology of work, are by her. She wrote three essays on it, and it's really shaped his thinking. So she sort of pops up in lots of different places. Um, so just thinking about what, what we can learn from her, I don't want to talk for the whole time, I think it'd be great to have discussion and questions, and I'm aware it's really late, so forgive me if it's a bit sort of compressed and do ask questions if something didn't make sense because I'm cutting a few bits and pieces out. But Dorothy Alsayers was um, probably initially most well known as an author of detective fiction. Um, she, Agatha Christie and G.K. Chesterton were the sort of leaders of the golden age of detective fiction in the UK and out of the hundreds of authors that emerged in that time period in the early 20th century, only those three are still in print. So um, she was a vociferous writer. She also wrote religious plays um, and other plays as well, but plays around the life of Jesus. She translated Dante into English for um, Dante's Inferno for Penguin and made a sort of popular copy of it so more people have read um, Dante's poetry in the English language because of her than all the previous translations put together. Um, she also wrote public kind of essays, which some of which had um, very direct theological reflection, and others of which you know weren't particularly about theology. And, and she really emerged in Britain alongside C.S. Lewis as. They were, they, they were the two voices for a public, kind of accessible articulation of the Christian faith. So, and the Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Oxford in 1943 wrote to the then Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, describing them as the two people who seemed really able to put across to ordinary people a reasonably orthodox form of Christianity. And Karl Barth loved Sayers, recommended her to his students. He called her one of the most outstanding British theologians whose books he'd read in order to learn English, and he went on to translate various of her essays. So um, she was a formidable person, and yet her work is very, very poorly known in the church, in the UK and beyond, if you compare her to, to C.S. Lewis. Um, so part of my interest in her was, um, I guess, the fact that she combined, obviously, being a woman in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, um, a, a writing career, but also actually having massive popular appeal as an apologist. Just a flavour of how she wrote. She wrote, kind of, she was quite feisty, you might say, this is what she wrote um, in one um, essay about Jesus. The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left to later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. 
We've efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him as meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a little bit of biography. She was born in 1893. She was an only child. Her father was a clergyman. She um, wrote letters from a really young age, and one letter from her as a 13-year-old has her reflecting on how, in one of her father's sermons, he'd mentioned theistic evolution, and the entire congregation had sort of gasped in, in horror that um, evolution could be mentioned in church, and then there might possibly be an overlap with, with, with Christianity and science. Um, other theological issues from around that era for her were her concern about the salvation of people who never heard about God, um, through to her concern about tendency towards legalism in, in Christian young people. Um, she primarily learned from a governess who taught her at home, and she began as a teenager to make points of application between what she was learning and the material world around her. She has a sort of loosely biographical unfinished novel in which she describes an incident from her own childhood through this character, Catherine. And she's been with her governess and they've been outside in the vicarage garden looking for the tennis court which had become completely overgrown. And Sayers is using the geometric principles that she's learned in the classroom to locate the hidden tennis court. And this is what she writes. If the court had not been precisely laid out in the first instant, she might have had more difficulty, but the corner being accurately placed, the laws of geometry held good. In her heart of hearts, Catherine was awe-stricken. To see a prophecy made on paper, fulfilled on the back lawn, is a very enlarging experience. This, for her, was an early experience of a pre-existing pattern being revealed in the specifics of life. The mundane lines of a tennis court took on massive significance for her, since applying principles of geometry to everyday life showed her something bigger, that there's an intrinsic coherence to reality. And so that simple experience was an observation of divine or ultimate truth being revealed in the mundane specifics of daily life. For her, it was a glimpse of beauty. She writes, she'd been brought face to face with beauty. It had risen up before her again, the lovely, satisfying unity of things. The wedding of the thing learned with the thing done, the great intellectual fulfillment. Nothing would ever quite wipe out the memory of that magnificent moment when the intersecting circles marched out of the page of the Euclid book and met on the green grass in the sun-flecked shadow of the mulberry tree. Sayers was a deeply intellectual young person and this interest in, in pattern or the coherence of reality emerged during her adolescent faith. And I think that's key for us today as we think about um, defending and commending Christian faith in Europe. Are we as Christians aware of the fundamental coherence of the Christian worldview? Are we 
in awe of what that actually means, that there's a pattern, that there's a structure, that there's a coherence to reality. And foundations are shifting around us. Everything feels less solid, less stable. How can we find something profound to say if we haven't had that revelation, that realisation ourselves? And I think the rise of people like Jordan Peterson or the rise of some of the tough feminist voices, um, that really interests me because they strike me as people who have conviction and pretty solid worldview thinking, and that is attractive. Um, but as Christians, as was talked about earlier, we don't just have truth, there's beauty in that truth. But are we communicating that? So that's something that was really powerful for Sayers herself as an adolescent and then um, throughout her career. Um, Sayers went to Oxford and sat for her final exams in French honours, specialising in the medieval period. Um, she was a brilliant linguist and she was awarded a first-class degree. So, and that's quite difficult to get. It's the, the, the highest category of degree and to give you a sense of it. You know, you might have a couple of hundred people sitting for that degree and maybe between five and ten get that classification. Um, and so for her to do that as a woman at that time was amazing. Um, at that time, women weren't allowed to graduate. They weren't allowed the honour of the degree. So they could do all the work, and take all the exams, but they weren't graduates. But in 1920, Oxford um, changed the rules and Dorothy Arceus was among the very first group of women upon whom Oxford conferred a degree. After um, her time at Oxford, she went to work in an advertising agency in London called Benson's and she was a copywriter and she was quite frankly grateful to be able to have a job that was interesting, again as a woman, at the time. And for nine years, she worked in this advertising agency and at home in the evening wrote her detective novels. She had a gift for communication and she came up with the slogan, it pays to advertise. I don't know if you've heard that, that says. Um, she came up with my goodness, my Guinness, which again is quite, is quite well known um, for us um, still. So some of her advertising slogans have survived um, to today. So she had a gift of, of communication, persuasive, memorable, communication with ordinary people, and it seems like that was a, an amazing foundation for what she went on to do. Um, in her first uh, detective novel in 1923 called Whose Body, um, uh, she hit, she, Actually, sorry, I'm, not cut. I'm going to cut that. So in another novel, Murder Must Advertise, she describes perceptions of truth in advertising. And she says, of course, there is some truth in advertising. There's yeast in bread, but you can't make bread with yeast alone. Truth in advertising is like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal. It provides a suitable quantity of gas with which to blow out a mass of crude misrepresentation into a form that the public can swallow. Um, during this period, she met and fell in love with a writer. He was a member of the Bloomsbury set, um, and their love affair was documented in various letters. He was an atheist, and he 
and tried to persuade Sayers out of her Christian faith. Um, he told her that he um, would never marry, that he was against marriage on principle, um, and he wanted to have a sexual relationship with her outside of marriage and use contraception so that there wouldn't be any children. But she um, obviously wanted to marry, and as a Christian, particularly in that era, um, wasn't going to use contraception. And so they separated over the issue. He then went off to North America and promptly got married seven months later. Meanwhile, she began a sort of rebound affair with a motorbike mechanic. And because she didn't love him or have any desire to bear his children, and because she was in such grief, she slept with him and used contraception, but it failed and she became pregnant and had a son. Her misery was compounded then by finding out that the man she loved actually had gone on and married somebody else and, had, and went on to have children. So she actually really suffered in her private life and kept the birth a secret. So she carried on working for the entire nine months of her pregnancy at the advertising agency, just wearing bag, looser and looser clothing and people just thought she'd got incredibly fat. She went um, and had her child alone. Her parents never knew they died without knowing they had a grandchild. Um, and her cousin fostered the baby. So Sayers was very human, um, rather like C.S. Lewis with his sort of drinking and smoking and you meet Americans who absolutely love Lewis and think, you have no idea what C.S. Lewis was actually like. Um, there, was a, there was a fundamental vulnerability to say this, and as you can imagine, um, as a woman in that period of time anyway, working in this kind of field, to then be hiding that kind of secret. So, um, in 1943, um, she had written a whole series of mystery plays based around the life of Jesus, and the BBC took them up. So the new media of the time was radio, and it was mass communication, it was new, it was, you know, like we keep saying social media, or the internet's like the Gutenberg, it's like the printing press for the Reformation. Well, radio felt like that to to Christians of that generation. And her plays brought the Gospels to life so that people heard the words of Jesus without that sort of air of a religious voice or a context of incense or anything. It brought the life and work and miracles and teaching of Jesus to life in the most astonishing way. I mean, people were absolutely confronted by the plays and millions and millions of people listened to them. And I think a good case can be made for an impact on church, statistical church attendance. There's a spike in the 1950s, her work and C.S. Lewis's work having that sort of impact. As a result of that, um, the religious professor of divinity at Oxford, Oliver Quick, wrote to the archbishop and said, you should confer um, a doctorate of divinity on Dorothy L. Sayers because of her outstanding contribution to Christian, the Christian faith in public. And she was offered it. She was the first woman to be offered the, um, that, the Lambeth DD. 
But she couldn't accept, and she wrote, um, turning it down, saying, I shouldn't like your first woman, DD, to create scandal or to give reviewers a cause to blaspheme. And she also went on to say that she thought she could present Christian faith to common people better without being hampered or impeded by any ecclesiastical label. So she felt that her status as a best-selling author of detective fiction, her role really as a public intellectual and essayist, meant that she wasn't kind of regarded as churchy, and that enabled her um, to, to communicate in, in an amazing way. So she was very flawed um, human, and in her, in her writing and in her letters, I think that's very, um, very open and clear. But she had tremendous integrity and really, first and foremost, cared about the good of the gospel. So very briefly, her kind of key apologetic emphases were, in, in, um, in the thesis I'm arguing, that they were a, a sort of triumvirate of a focus on truth and the idea that we need to set before the public um, the truth claims of the Christian faith and challenge people to consider them and also to open up about their own presuppositions and assumptions, their own worldviews, and to see which stacks up. So she was passionate um, about, about doing that, about truth, and she regarded that as operating in different dimensions, philosophically, historically, even in science and, and stuff, and she debated various people. Um, the second concept um, that I think we really have something to learn from Sayers around is her grasp of the power of narratives, the power of story. So um, she wrote stories herself, including um, in dramatic form, but she also really reflected theologically on the concept of story and how God's interaction with us as human beings in history, ultimately through Jesus, but actually throughout scripture and throughout the history of the church, the way God interacts with us is in the nitty gritty of life and that plays out in story. So the stories of our lives, the stories of how um, God has worked and ultimately, of course, um, through the incarnation. And she really believed that the church had had lost sight of that and had begun to imagine that, that, that the Christian faith is fundamentally um, about sets of presuppositions or ideas that people need to accept. Um, she loved the word dogma, funnily enough. Her work, her work is filled with dogmatics and the word dogma. But she wrote that the Christian dogma is the greatest drama, greatest story ever staged. And she said, it is the dogma that is the drama, not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and gate of death. Um, so... Yeah, she's like, the incarnation of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a system of ethics, though it contains a code of ethics. It is not primarily an explanation of the universe, though it provides a rational explanation of the universe. It is a story. 
what kind of story? Well, it's not a story about a nice young man called Jesus who is very religious and had ideas in advance of his age about brotherhood or internationalism and the working man and being ever so kind to children who taught a good way of life and unfortunately got into trouble with the police and was killed. That would be just another human story of a kind which we are only too familiar. No, this is a story about God. It's also a story about man. It's a story about the relationship between God and man and the beginning of time. It's a story about our father and you and me and our sons and daughters. It is the story, the key, that unlocks all of history. So she talks, talks a lot about um, the interplay of myth and archetype, but there's this fundamental sort of energy rippling through her written work and through her interactions because Jesus is alive and God interacts with people in the real world, in our real experience. And I think that's incredibly powerful. I've learned a lot through that in my own apologetics, um, how we integrate story. So she did it as a creator of stories, as an artist, as an author, but also as someone who reflected on the, on the apologetic impact of and paradigmatic importance of story. Now the third concept is what she called pattern. So you've got truth, which we're going after, we want the truth to be publicly revealed, we have story, and then we have what she called pattern. And pattern really represents the unifying picture within which all the pieces fit. fit. It's a picture or a structure for truth that Sayers was committed to finding, revealing, exploring, reflecting on in her work. And she became increasingly committed to the idea that the Christian revelation is the ultimate pattern that undergirds all meaning and that ultimately without it meaning collapses and she reflected on that in in different ways but obviously she lived through the second world war so i just want to give you um a, a kind of insight into into how she did that because she did public theology really really well so in a wartime talk on the radio called the religions behind the nation this was broadcast to the nation by the BBC. She provided listeners with this articulation of her concept of pattern and its implication for what was happening in the lived experience of the nation at that time. So she said it's commonly agreed in Britain that people want to defend our culture, but she wanted to ask the question, what is our culture. It's, it's really relevant for today. She argued that the critical point at stake in defining the culture of the nation was not the ideologies preached or the religious outlook ticked on a census, but what she said, the common assumptions, sorry, the assumptions that we hold in common about what is good. So we're back to beauty, truth, and goodness. So what does a society together hold in common about what the good is? She said, the things we take so much for granted that we never, as a culture, never even argue about them. So she's writing this speech and broadcasting it in 1941. And she said that British culture presupposes all men, all races, possess certain rights in common just because they are men. We take it for granted that such things as freedom, mercy, charity, truth, tolerance, justice and peace 
are good things. But by contrast, she pointed out that the Nazis absolutely deny these assumptions. They base their new order of civilization on the contrary assumptions that inferior races have no rights, that mercy and charity are effeminate vices, and that war is more desirable than peace. She concluded that, you know, we may look at that and think it's sheer barbarism, but, but, but the, the basis of that reaction lay on two basic but widely held assumptions. And she said, these assumptions on which our reaction to Nazis of being barbarism are based cannot be proved by reason and science has no evidence to support them. So she's saying the assumptions were that both our conception of the good and our human reason are actually valid. And then she looked at Roman and Greek and Enlightenment thinking and concluded that an enlightened human reason can establish almost anything except those two things. That our reason can be established and that what we regard as the good is actually good. It's, it's fascinating. So she said, she then goes on to say that Christian dogma could provide a coherent foundation for both goodness and reason. And then she said, um, uh, she sort of envisages pattern in different ways. So she at one point envisages pattern as a kind of picture and there are pieces in it. Another place she envisages pattern as a kind of tapestry being woven. And until you go round to the front of the loom, you can't see the pattern, but all the pieces woven together. And at another point, she envisages pattern as a necklace with beads on it. And this is what she does in this, um, in this radio talk. She says, um, Christian dogma asserted that the things which man had believed about right and reason from the beginning of time were neither idle dreams nor wishful thinking, but actually an earthly true. In fact, it claimed that man's persistent belief in goodness and reason were justified, that such was the nature of God and the true nature of man, and that Christ was there to prove it. Christianity offered the actual fact of the incarnation, taking theology out of the realm of myth and allegory and pegging it firmly into history. It picked up, so to speak, all the scattered ideas about God and man in the universe that had been lying around like loose beads, beautiful and disconnected, and ran through them like a string, the historical personality of God who was made flesh. She then envisages this necklace with the string of the incarnate Christ in history, pulling the beads into a coherent shape as the pattern on which Western civilization has been built and able to flourish. But she said, now what intellectuals are doing is seeking to do away with Christ. The very historical string holding the beads together were getting our scissors out and trying to snip the string. She said, it's the pattern of those beads on that string that is the pattern of our civilization. We've grown accustomed to the look of it. We've spent 19 and a half centuries polishing the beads. And during that time, we've been tempted to feel that the only thing that spoils the look of them is the ugly string of Christian dogma running through them. For the last three centuries, we've been snipping the string away, strand by strand, forgetting that it was the string that made the pattern in the first place. Now, let's be quite clear about that. The assumptions we take for granted about right and reason, which seem to us self-evident, are not self-evident at all. But the evidence for them is the evidence for Christ. 
and if we reject the one, we automatically reject the other. What we've been trying to do for some time is keep the Christian ethic without the connecting thread of Christian theology, the beads without the string. We can, of course, hope or imagine that the pattern will hold together of its own accord, but we have no rational warrant for supposing that it will. Indeed, the witness of history contradicts that supposition. So she, um, she was, that was her radio talk, challenging the nation to consider the impact of Christ. It reminds me of how Os Guinness talks about Western culture as a cut flower civilization. So you cut the flowers and you put them in a vase and they continue to bloom for a bit, but they're, they're cut, they've been cut off from the root um, of, of, of Christianity. So true story pattern, we can learn loads from them. Um, and then just two brief things which I won't say much about. What stands out to me from Sayer's work is her focus on Jesus, his incarnation, his revelation in history. Um, it's beautiful. And she models that in really creatively in her plays, um, in the essays, in the way she spoke. The focus was front and central on Jesus. And then I think the second thing that we can learn from her is around how she engaged with work and vocation and creativity. Haven't we got time to talk about that? But then thirdly, just the fact of her gender. In her work, it's a woman's voice being heard. And just even by doing that work, and even by speaking of Christ in the way she did, she was saying, women have something to contribute in apologetics. Women need to have their work acknowledged and owned by the church. And she brilliantly, um, she actually wrote two essays, one called Are Women Human? Um, and the other called The Human, Not Quite Human, and they're published, if you're interested in her work, best place to start is a um, collection of essays called Unpopular Opinions. And uh, she, she wrote, this was partly because the BBC said to her, the public do not want to be admonished by a woman. <laughs> she, she was quite feisty on the radio and they tried to tell her off for it. But um, in these two essays, she kind of explores women, but she has this beautiful phrase about Jesus and I'll finish with it. She said this, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, and there never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them and never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be more feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. It goes on um, about how amazing Jesus of Nazareth was in his interaction with, with, um, with women. So, Sayers' work reverberates with her convictions about truth, her intuitive appeal to connect people with pattern, her grasp of how as human beings we, um, we relate within story, um, 
she she wrote on work she was incredibly creative and she herself as a woman um, was really this amazingly prophetic person but she was always pointing to the ministry of Jesus um, including in his affirmation for humanity of women so he's talked about coming to know and love God through her love of the intellectual pattern of the Christian faith. Um, and that's, I, I admit, pretty unusual, um, but I found it incredibly, incredibly refreshing. And since I've sort of been working on her, I've found, um, even in some of the things we're trying to do, really inspiration from her apologetic method. So I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> Does anyone want to ask a question or make a comment? Just a question. Um, did she move from writing criminal novels into apologetics, or did she combine them? Great question. So, um, in terms of her genres, her, her genres kind of moved chronologically, the focus of her work. So. Um, she's at university, then she's writing advertising slogans, then detective fiction, then the plays, that overlaps a bit with the essays. Um, then she wrote her major sort of theological book, it's called The Mind of the Maker, which is a reflection on the Trinity and human creativity as an apologetic for Trinitarian theology. Um, and then she did the translation work on Dante, so, um, and focused more on essays. So what's really interesting, we didn't have time to talk about here, um, in the detective fiction, is that what she's doing is laying out sort of disparate pieces of things that happened. And then the process is that people come to a conclusion about truth on the basis of evidence. And it's only when the evidence is fitted together in a coherent pattern that we can know the story of what really happened. So there's very much a sort of apologetic undertow to it. So it's not direct like C.S. Lewis has Aslan as Jesus. It's not allegorical in that sense. But there's absolutely um, um, a, a kind of theological exploration happening in the novels. Yeah, and then she later writes essays about detective fiction as well. Uh, thank you very much Henry, for this presentation. Um, uh, two short questions. Firstly, uh, the radio program, uh, uh, The Religions Behind the Nation, mm -hmm. is, is that published? Yes, it is published. Yeah. Yeah. It's published in a book called Begin Here. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like <laughs> an amazing, amazing presentation. Then, uh, in terms of the third point of, of when you talked about her apologetics uh, pattern mm -hmm. and um, the quote you gave here on, on uh, reason and goodness yeah. uh, can only be found, uh, founded on God. It's uh, very similar to some of the C.S. Lewis apologetics in Miracles or Mere Christianity to argue from uh, goodness and, and morality. So my question is, how, how close were they in there? Were they working independently, or were they really close during the time, in terms of discussion and dialogue and, yeah. and so on? Thank you. Um, 
So they corresponded. There's a whole, so all of her papers, or most of her papers, are at the Wade Center in Wheaton, um, in America. And there's a whole file of her correspondence with C.S. Lewis, like the pen. You can go and see the, the, the written letters back and forth, which is really amazing. So they were they were friends, and she used to critique his work. She she used to tell him off for writing about things she thought he didn't really understand. <laughs> I wanted him to sort of stay focused on what he really should be doing. Um, it's quite funny. Um, and he wrote the eulogy at her funeral. So they were friends, but they didn't actually meet up in person more than about two or three times, because you've got to remember the war was happening, um, the trains were horrendous, and she wasn't in, you know, sometimes people think she's one of the Inklings, she wasn't in that club. So there was a, a she didn't live in Oxford, um, so that, that obviously didn't help with that, but absolutely they were, they were friends, and she was very good friends with Charles Williams, who got her her first playwriting gig for one of the um, Canterbury festivals, and who, who introduced her to Dante as well. So, yes, colleagues. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think she was drawing on C.S. Lewis in that sense, although they, they were discussing ideas and things, but... Um, yeah, certainly the, the the truth, beauty and goodness thing that came out earlier was 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 front and central for her. Yeah. Any other final questions? Thanks a lot, Amy. This is wonderful. Um, and uh, you know it's just thinking about that, the truth story and pattern. And that's worth uh, um, a lot of reflection. Yes. And, uh, and uh, do you think the pattern is related to also to the, what we today talk about, the world view? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If anyone is interested, my, D, my PhD thesis is publicly available. If you just go on academia.edu, and my name page, it's there and you can just read it. Oh. I've actually taken the liberty of sending it a minute ago to everyone oh, present well here. Done. Oh, okay. I'm in the hyperlink to it. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, exactly. So, so enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, uh, I must say that, that uh, Reading Dorothy Sayers, also crime fiction, is, a, is yeah. a very enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some some uh, months ago, uh, I published a piece in one of the Christian Daily newspapers on, on classical British crime, yeah. inspired partly by, by your work. Very good. Okay, thanks a lot for everyone being uh, persevere until yeah. quarter to nine after a very long day. So, so just to explain that, that uh, uh, everything we are sharing during um, everything we are sharing during both today and after lunch tomorrow uh, is something that also Pete will 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 uh, write the summary of, and that will actually be be part of the further uh, European Lausanne Europe conversation in various ways. So so uh, more about that tomorrow.
But so everything that has been discussed tonight is also part of that. So what you have, what we have done to, today, tonight, is also contributing mm -hmm. to the conversation. So in that sense, it's a listening exercise as much as sharing. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Uh, so let's pray and. and uh,